0: Hi, welcome to The Signal. I'm Dane Patterson.
1: And I'm Leslie Tatum. We're with the Audio Workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. And this is our last show for the term.
0: For the next half hour, we're going to tell you about what's going on around Halifax.
1: Today on the show...
0: We're setting the stake in the sand and setting the stage for uh, other jurisdictions across the country uh, with a full uh, flavor ban.
1: Nova Scotia becomes the first province to ban flavored e-cigarettes and juices.
0: From on-camera to in-camera.
1: The optics of it certainly look like they don't want to be transparent.
0: A student council decision has one woman asking, DS who?
1: And skating in the great outdoors.
2: Really wide open space, fresh, cool, clean air. It's kind of like a giant sandbox.
1: Where to go when you're asking, Ice, ice, maybe?
0: All All that and more on today's show. But first... Today marks the 102nd anniversary of the Halifax Explosion. Thousands of lives and the city's history were changed forever when two ships collided in the harbor and exploded. Today, for the first time, family members of some of the victims and survivors wore red scarves to the ceremony at Fort Nita Memorial Park. As Alex Scultetti tells us, it's part of an effort to recognize the descendants in the remembrance.
3: Marilyn Davidson Elliott's father was blinded in the Halifax Explosion. He was two years old. Now, she tries to keep his memory alive.
4: The children and the grandchildren of the victims and survivors of the Halifax explosion are the ones who are left now to tell the stories. I'm one of those storytellers.
3: For several years, Davidson Elliott has lobbied the city to allow descendants of victims and survivors to be involved in the annual ceremony. But, the city has been reluctant. Lindell Smith is the counselor for Halifax Peninsula North.
5: It would be hard to have to choose one family over another. And, you know, that's why staff believe incorporating residents or families would be difficult.
6: But
3: this year, a change of heart. The city allowed Davidson Elliott to lay a wreath.
4: And I hope that practice will continue and someone else, some family member will lay the wreath each year.
3: She recalls the 100th anniversary when Vince Coleman's grandson spoke. Coleman was a train dispatcher who died in the explosion.
4: People were thrilled to hear him speak, and it gave more of a human element. And it made it real for people who were there.
3: And real for a B.C. band whose first album features a song inspired by Coleman's story. Lead singer Tom Hamill read about it in a Vancouver Sun article.
5: I was just blown away by the by the story the, the you know, this year scale of, of the disaster and surprise that I didn't know about it before.
3: Hamill says individual stories keep history alive. For The Signal, I'm Alex Scultetti.
7: As he kissed his wife goodbye
6: and helped his little girl None of them knew what would come to change what they held dear
1: Next spring, the air will smell a lot less like pineapple and cotton candy in Nova Scotia. Minister of Health Randy Delory announced yesterday that the province will be prohibiting the sale of flavored e-cigarettes and juices. So Dane, you were at the announcement. Why are they implementing this ban?
0: It's expected to deter people from starting to vape, but their main concern is youth in the province. They hope to curb youth vaping with a ban on flavored juices and cigarettes. Products which they say encourage young users. This is about reducing the rate. Uh, What we've seen in the last couple of years since uh, e-cigarettes have become widely uh, available in Canada, uh, and indeed throughout uh, much of North America, is a rapidly growing rate of, in particular, youth vaping. In addition to that, we see research that shows that as people start with uh, e-cigarettes or vaping, they actually have a higher probability of transitioning to traditional tobacco products as well. Delory also said that Nova Scotia is the first province to introduce this type of change, but it's only a first step. The province is considering legislative changes as well.
1: If Nova Scotia is the first to ban the flavored products, are other provinces going to follow?
0: The Health Minister thinks so. Other provinces already have varying levels of regulation. In BC, they are restricting flavors, reducing nicotine levels, and increasing taxes. PEI has increased their age limit to 21. But DeLore is hoping for the federal government to make stronger blanket regulations.
1: So how are people responding to yesterday's announcement?
0: Uh, The Canadian Cancer Society, the Lung Association of Nova Scotia, and Smoke-Free Nova Scotia all thought this was a strong step in the right direction. But Daryl Tempest disagrees. He speaks for the Canadian Vaping Association. It represents about 300 businesses that sell or manufacture vaping products. He doesn't think flavors are the issue. He wants stronger national regulation, but on things like nicotine concentration and advertising.
3: I think it's going to be completely ineffective to address the challenges around youth uptake. And instead, it puts thousands of former smokers who have chosen vaping as a far less harmful alternative to combustible tobacco to either uh, choose the illicit black market for their products, or uh, to return to combustible tobacco, which we know kills one in two users long term.
0: The minister had said that the province does not believe this will cause a risk arise in black market purchases, but Tempest strongly disagrees. I
6: say that they're flat out wrong.
0: He thinks youth and adults will find black market sources with less regulations on their production.
1: Wow, thanks, Dane. And if you want to read more about this, check out our website, signalhfx.ca.
0: The Dalhousie Student Union is facing criticism over its decision to stop the practice of live-streaming its meetings. Videos of the meetings have been available to the public for years, but the DSU president says live-streams are creating a lack of safety for council members. Ben Boggs has more.
3: Okay, yeah, we're going to not interrupt.
6: This is the live-stream of the October 23rd Dalhousie Student Council meeting. The quality isn't good, but it's a visual record of what took place. It's also a way for students to attend meetings remotely. Um, The meeting was contentious. Transparency was a focal point. Two meetings later, the DSU council passed a motion in camera to stop the live streams. It cited the accessibility needs of council. The Dalhousie Gazette has been managing the streams this year. Editor-in-chief Rebecca Dingwell was not impressed by the decision.
7: The optics of it certainly look like they don't want to be transparent, don't want to face criticism, that they have something to hide.
6: The Dalhousie Student Union executive has an explanation. Isha Abuji is Dalhousie Student Union president. She says live streams have led to counselors being harassed online and in person and don't feel safe
3: councillors aren't able to do their job, if they're not able to like fully express um, their concerns, their constituents' concerns, because of the fear and worries and the implications that live streaming does have.
6: She also says the decision is necessary to abide by the union's bylaws, which require a safe space for union work.
3: One of our core mandates is an anti-oppressive framework, and so an anti-oppressive framework really looks at supporting the most marginalized in any situation to like uplift them, and so in Abiding to our bylaws, our highest document, we are doing exactly that.
6: For now, students can keep up to date by attending meetings in person, contacting their representative, or reading the meeting minutes. Those are released two weeks after meetings. Ben Bogsty, The Signal, Halifax.
1: Every day in Halifax, the QE2 hospital sees two to three women who've had a miscarriage. For grieving families, there can be little support for the loss of a pregnancy. I visited one woman who's working to change that.
4: This one has
1: this
8: one has a little diaper
4: and the blanket
1: and a little cloak. In 2013, Paula Harmon was pregnant with twins. At week 17, she lost one. Shortly after, she had Grace. But then, three years later, after medical complications, Grace was gone too. In 2016, she started Gardens of Grace, a support group for women like her who'd lost babies. Now, as part of that, she's crafting clothing for miscarried and stillborn babies. This is how I've learned to still be a parent to Grace. Um, Takes a lot of
4: work, but so does being a parent.
1: (laughs) This past summer, Robin Burrell lost her daughter, Violet, at 20 weeks of pregnancy. Harmon offered her support and a memory packet. It included information about support groups, a certificate of life, and a white gown with violet trim and a hat for her miscarried baby.
3: It was
7: nice having, like, comfort kind of thing, because that's not something that a lot of people will talk about, because it's hard, especially when you know you're not coming home with your little one.
1: Harmon says parents deserve the opportunity to dress their baby and bury or cremate them in clothing, and acknowledge their life. Robin was grateful.
7: It had a little scroll inside, which had, um, like, a certificate of life, since the hospital doesn't really give you either a birth certificate or really a death certificate, so they didn't really give us anything that kind of
1: proved she was a person. So far, Harmon has supplied memory packets to almost 100 women at hospitals in the Halifax area.
0: Are you avoiding the library because of lay fees? Starting tomorrow, Halifax Public Libraries is waiving all overdue fines for the week. Chris Dooley checked things out.
9: Thanks for using the library book drop. Please insert materials one at a time. The door will close when you are finished.
8: Dave McNeil hopes the Fine Free campaign will help people unload that guilty feeling that comes with an overdue library book.
6: So it's both to kind of, you know, give a little back to the community, but also welcome back in particular those folks who maybe have uh, avoided the library or have been afraid to come back because of the fines they've owed on their accounts.
8: McNeil is a manager at the library. He says people are usually quite good at returning items, but it's not uncommon to see items not returned for over 10 years.
6: I think what often happens there is it's situations where people completely forget or they move or they loan it to someone else while they have it out. $10 is the
8: maximum amount Halifax Public Libraries will charge on a single overdue item, but it can quickly add up if someone has multiple items checked out. Valerie Cochran is a frequent user of the library, and she's quite diligent about returning things.
6: I think it's a civil duty to bring your books back on time. I worked in a library and I know the value of people requiring books, you know, urgently or certainly on time.
8: Topping the overdue list... DVDs like Wayne's World 2 and books like Halloween, The Best of Martha Stewart. Still, the main goal is to spread some holiday cheer and get people back to their local libraries. McNeil says people are so grateful.
6: They're so happy that this is, that this is being offered because it's, it has a, a funny impact on people where they, they feel so bad about owing money to the library.
8: The campaign was created to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the opening of the Halifax Central Library. For The Signal, I'm Chris Dudley.
0: So now is your chance to start off fresh at your library. The campaign starts December 7th and runs until the 14th.
1: Nova Scotia has a big fiddling tradition. If you go to Sydney, Cape Breton, you'll even see a 60-foot fiddle on the waterfront. Really? Really. And for every fiddle, there's also a bow, which can be surprisingly hard to repair. Andrew McGuire has a story of a family business with a lot of bow expertise and an uncertain future.
4: When it comes to repairing stringed instruments, the Halifax Folklore Center can usually handle the job. But if you need a violin bow fixed, Noah Ty says they'll pass it along.
0: Bows are pretty specific for repairs. Uh, Tom, the store owner, you know, they always say you've got to do about 100 before you can charge anyone. I think Tom got to 50 and decided he was going to find another guy for that.
4: Another guy is actually Jim Danson, with help from his daughter Gwen. They run the Bowed Instrument Shop. They fixed about 13,000 bows since 2002 for the Folklore Center alone. They also repair and sell violins from their bright corner in the Maritime Conservatory. Jim has been repairing violins and bows for about 36 years.
0: The man that taught me rehairing said that um, after you've rehaired a thousand bows, you'll maybe know what you're doing. And I thought he was joking, but uh, it was around a thousand bows that I felt really comfortable and didn't really have to think <laughs> terribly hard about it.
4: Growing up, Gwen cleaned bows and did other odd jobs for her dad. She started working in the shop in 2007.
0: He
7: says I was conscripted. My job is to facilitate his work.
4: Jim is pushing retirement age now, and the dancers aren't sure whether they'll sell or close the store. Ty says that would leave a void.
0: It'll be a problem for a lot of violinists and cello players, so it's it's the younger generation that needs to uh, learn how to do some of this stuff.
4: But for now, Jim is still hanging on.
0: Uh, Every time I get really close to making a decision, I decide my decision is that I really still like what I'm doing, so I just keep going.
4: Jim says they're in the business of making people happy, and it's a great business to be in. For The Signal, I'm Andrea McGuire.
0: The nights are getting longer, the days are getting colder, and the snow, sleet, and slush have returned to Halifax. One might think hibernation is the best option, or maybe you'd like to brave the cold and stay active outdoors. Either way... One local skating enthusiast wants to help Nova Scotians explore frozen lakes around the province. Ethan Lang has more.
2: Last winter was a good one for skating. Gasparo resident Joel Hornborg says he got out on the ice over 30 times. For him, nothing beats a frozen lake. You're in a really wide open space, fresh, cool, clean air. It's kind of like a giant sandbox. Hornborg is an avid long-distance skater. He created the online group Northeastern Natural Ice last year to help grow outdoor skating in Nova Scotia, where the weather and ice is always in flux. Basically, we are a community of natural ice enthusiasts. We share information and try to help people get more comfortable using the ice for recreation. There are more than 100 members monitoring ice conditions across the province. This week, Hornberg spoke with some of them at their season kickoff meeting in the Annapolis Valley. Nancy Pinch-Worthy Lake joined Nor'easter last winter.
0: We can check ice conditions on the website and people are posting whether
10: or not it's safe. There are many days we can go out where if we were only checking the ice ourselves, we may not go.
2: Here in the HRM, the city tests and posts the thickness of over 70 lakes weekly. But Nor'easter offers more information on the actual condition of the ice. They also offer safety training sessions and information. The group even offers hands-on training on how to prepare for falling through the ice. Hornberg says he's done that many times. It becomes more of an inconvenience. It's actually not that hard to rescue yourself and get back up on the ice if you do fall through, but only for someone who's mentally and physically prepared. Hornberg has seen smaller lakes and ponds start to freeze over this week and expects many will be skatable within the month. For The Signal, I'm Ethan Lang. All right.
1: (laughs) I'm not trying to brag here, but this time next week I'll be on the beach.
2: Well, Leslie, aren't you lucky?
1: You're listening to The Signal, storytelling from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Leslie Tatum.
0: And I'm Dane Patterson. Still to come on the show. For people on low
5: income like myself, I really don't mind paying $7 for what you get at all. It's well worth it
0: we find out how one program is making produce more affordable in the North End.
1: Meanwhile, another group is cooking up free food with a side of political discussion.
0: It's extremely important to talk about fascism in general. I mean, we're seeing a rise of it in Canada.
1: Sticking a fork in fascism.
0: And we'll hear about Halifax dogs of Instagram and their strong community bond. There you go. good girl.
1: But first, the holidays are just around the corner. For many people, that means a hefty chunk of their paychecks are spent at the grocery store. This year, people will be feeling that cost even more than usual. An annual report published by Dalhousie and the University of Guelph says food costs are rising. Eamon McGinty is with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, which published their study this week. Our associate producer, Sam Gillett, sat down with Eamon to find out more.
11: Thanks for coming into The Signal. Really my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. How much does the average Canadian family
5: spend on food in a year? If you take the average of four, it's anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of their annual paychecks um, are spent towards food. And how much will it go up this year? Um, so we took a total from last year's amount, which is um, just over 12,000 and we think it'll go up by $487. It's hard to say specifically.
11: And the report outlines how like a number of factors come into play about why these prices yeah. and why this expenditure is rising. Could you unpack some of those reasons?
5: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So so first is um, the macroeconomic environment uh, of the food uh, and agri-food sector. Um, so it's truly a global sector and um, the supply chains, which is basically from farming all the way to post-consumerism. Um, is interconnected with world events. So if you have current trade wars, for example, in China, uh, a lot of those trade wars are around agricultural products, uh, chemical products, things that are used as inputs in the agricultural supply chain. Um, It will disrupt Canadian uh, production as well because we trade with both countries. Um, There's other things like disease outbreaks. We saw two big things happen last year um, with E. coli in lettuce. Um, in early 2019, and then uh, the African swine flu with uh, pork imports and pork production in China, um, they had to they had to uh, kill all the pork that they had, um, not all of the pork they had, but all the pork that had the African swine flu, uh, which dropped their supply. Uh, and what ha- what happens there is that they need to procure and buy from other parts of the world, um, so they they pushed up demand in countries like Canada.
11: And the report kind yeah. of dived into
5: our changing climate
11: and yeah. changing yeah. climates around the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, climate
5: change is, we call it the elephant in the room in the report. Um, climate change um, is two things. It it has an impact on how you grow. It has an impact on your soil quality. It has an impact on the water uh, management systems you use. How does that impact food prices? Um, well, if you have a shortage of growing seasons, sorry, shorter growing seasons, it means you're not producing as much, just plain and simple. So you have kind of a shortage in the supply chain of whatever it is you may use. And then the other other thing I would say is, basically with the carbon tax uh, mechanism that's looking to get uh, implemented across the country, um, we think that, uh, that food prices will get affected through that because um, producers will, will feel the brunt of that.
11: Now, how, what would you tell to a Canadian family that wants to keep their food prices down in the coming year?
5: So recommendations that we have are stick to the uh, core products, so the core basic um, greens. So I would say broccoli is one of them. Um, and if broccoli is too expensive on the fresh aisle, go frozen. Um, there's, there's good Canadian meats. Uh, we do support plant-based proteins, but um, I think a good Canadian meat is a, is always a good deal um, if you can get it, you know, at a good season and a good time.
11: And what do it, you think the Canadian government can do to combat rising food prices?
5: Yeah, I mean, we. That's a that's a really big uh, topic of conversation as well. I mean, you look at the United States with with their food stamps program. Um, I think that's been obliterated now, or it's been um, canceled throughout some states um, with their new administration. Uh, we haven't really rolled out something like that in Canada, um, which is basically like an allowance, um, or uh, it's an amount of, of, of dollars you can spend towards food, uh, but it's specifically for food. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not for uh, you. Kind of ca- you. Kind of build boundaries around where you use that cash. I know we have an issue in the north uh, with access to good food and the pricing there, um, uh, to, to me, that that's something that, that we need to deal with. Um, there's things like indoor farming that's taking off. I think governments could play a part in supporting financing some of these operations. I, I think the other thing as well is looking at how do we incentivize consumers to buy better foods, uh, which is obviously um, a health question, like a public health question. Um, to, to basically soften the, the price price blow they may feel for lower-income houses uh, who may be buying cheaper uh, commoditized goods.
11: It will be interesting to see how this develops in the coming year. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Signal. my pleasure. Thanks for having Appreciate
1: me. it. Eamon McGinty is with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab based at Dalhousie and the University of Guelph. It publishes an annual report on cost of food.
0: With the cost of food rising, some families will be forced to choose between groceries and rent. A group in Halifax's North End is trying to ease that financial stress. The Good Food Box offers subsidized health food and has a faithful following. Christina Pappas has more.
12: Hello. Every month, Steve subsidized Cook picks up a Good Food Box from the North End Community Health Center on Goddard Street.
0: You get all kinds of different
5: things, recipes, it's all healthy, and it's cheap.
12: He's one of 80 to 100 people who use this service.
5: For people on low income like myself, I really don't mind paying $7 for what you get at all. It's well worth it.
12: Shelly Backerdax is a community nutritionist who helps coordinate the program, along with three volunteers who pack the boxes. So right now, we're just putting it all the back. So we have 80 food boxes yeah. this month,
9: and we're waiting for the produce to arrive.
12: Each month, the box provides three fruits and three vegetables and occasionally fresh eggs. This month we have bananas, apples and oranges, romaine lettuce, carrots and potatoes. The monthly box is a great way for people to get affordable produce. But Act says it's not a sustainable solution. They're trying to fill a gap.
3: Not going
12: to cover the groceries for the whole month. It's just like a supplementation. Lisa Roberts is the MLA for Halifax Needham. She says there's an overall issue with food security in the area, and it goes beyond lack of money.
4: There isn't a grocery store that is in easy walking distance, and even the bus access to the grocery
6: store is awkward.
12: Robert says programs like the Good Food Box are good initiatives, but it's a band-aid. She says the real answer is increased income assistance rates, increased minimum wage, and investments in affordable housing. For The Signal, I'm Christina Pappas.
1: In a few weeks, people who receive social assistance in Nova Scotia will be getting more money. A previously announced increase comes into effect January 1st. But as Kate Woods tells us, the additional 2 to 5%
9: may not make much of a difference. Kelly Allen has three kids. She lives on a tiny income since a car accident a few years ago permanently disabled her. Her husband died of cancer in 2017. We applied for social assistance. But they declined us because I get a $400 widow's benefit a month. Alan had to sell anything she had of value to make ends meet. With new rates and a simpler application process, she says she may reapply for income assistance. Starting January 1st, people who make less than $16,000 are eligible. And the rates are rising, between 2 and 5% depending on people's circumstances. For example, a single mother with one child will get a $40 increase to $940 a month. Mark Culligan is a community worker at Dalhousie Legal Aid. He says the increases are small and that 58% of people living on income assistance live below the poverty line.
2: I don't think this is going to be a meaningful improvement in people's lives, but the reality is that um, income assistance is not a place that anyone wants to be because you're not given enough to live a healthy life.
9: He says Nova Scotia has one of the lowest rates of assistance in the country.
2: We have income assistance rate that, uh, that leaves poor people uh, and disproportionately racialized people, 70% of whom are disabled, many of whom are children themselves, in a position of tremendous human suffering.
9: Culligan says that means people are suffering from malnutrition, mental health problems, and are being evicted because they can't pay the rent. Some resort to sex work. The January increases, he says, won't change any of that. For The Signal, I'm Kate Woods.
0: A new anti-fascist collective is trying to encourage people to be aware of groups in Halifax that may be spreading hate. And as Felicia Chandler tells us, they're doing it one meal at a time.
1: Mm.
7: Volunteer Andy James is preparing the meal of the day for this week's Food Against Fascism meeting. On the menu today... Leak soup.
6: I'm gonna try and make soup and there's cabbage and lettuce in there and there's tons of apples.
7: All food used is sourced from the People's Fridge. It's owned by Radstorm, a nonprofit collective which provides a space. People are free to leave and take food as they see fit. The ingredients don't always make for an ideal meal, but they make it work. Quinn Robb and Chelsea Williams are members of Food
0: Against Fascism. So those who attend are welcome to access free anti-fascism materials, as well as participate in collective discussions on combating fascism in our shared community. Together, we work to raise awareness of anti-fascist organization, both locally and abroad.
4: I think that Food Against Fascism is a good space to make people more comfortable with the idea of engaging in anti-fascist practices.
7: Food Against Fascism is the only group of its kind dedicated to spreading awareness of fascism in Halifax. But Rob says it's facing a challenge. The Radstorm Collective that houses it is trying to raise money to keep the building.
0: I mean, we're, we're always at the whim of Radstorm, so if they lose this space, we lose this space too.
7: But for the moment, Food Against Fascism meets for a meal every Monday and welcomes new members. For The Signal, I'm Felicia Chandler.
1: It seems these days there are as many dogs on Instagram as people. Halifax Dogs of Instagram is a Facebook group with over 200 members. Tiffany Field started the group so people with accounts for their dogs could meet, hang out, and attend events together. Olivia Malley has more.
10: Hello! <laughs> 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 Tiffany Field started an Instagram account for her dog Ripley and later Kepler in 2017.
7: So I didn't plan on it being like a big community or anything. It was just really a place where I wanted to share photos as
10: Ripley grew up. But Fields really fell in love with the community. The community is
7: just so kind and open and really great. And we really try to support each other as much as we can.
10: The group outgrew Instagram Messenger. So Fields created a Facebook group so more people could find out about events and get to know one another.
7: We like to go to local dog related events. We like to plan, okay, well, I'm going to be here this day around this time. Like let's, let's all be there around that time. And just general meetups, like dog birthday parties,
10: that sort of thing. Trying to get her to
12: stop being a little barky. There you go. Good girl.
10: Mayanda Weber is also a member. She says it's given her and her dog Clover a lot of new friends their dogs get along and then you end up making more playdates and then I assume it's the same as if people had kids. Clover is three years old and has over 26,000 followers on Instagram. Along with all that digital love comes learning. Word will travel about best trainers, best kennels, best walkers, best, best,
12: us It's been good to like keep on top of the, the kind of best for my dog, especially
10: with training. <laughs> Being a part of the community has all been good for Clover. Whoever says is better with dogs than people. For The Signal, I'm Olivia Malley.
0: That's our show for today, and the end of our audio workshop. Woo! Thanks this week to producer Leslie Amundsen, aka Scallops, associate producer Sam Gillett, and our social media editor, Ben Bogstie.
1: Our technician is Mark Pinio, with an assistance from Christine Pappas, and our audio professor is Pauline Dakin. I'm Leslie Tatum.
0: And I'm Dane Patterson. Have a great weekend.